Um, open your Bibles with me to Psalms, the book of Psalms in verse or chapter 7, the seventh Psalm. During this uh, remodeling project, we've taken a little hiatus from our study through Zechariah, and the debate between Bill Nye and Ken Ham has given me the opportunity to talk about thinking and how to think biblically. Uh, and that, that is something that is sorely lacking in the world, is biblical thinking. Um, I have often said uh, over the almost 17 years that uh, I've been pastor here that I only want to be remembered for two things. If the Lord took me out of here, just two things. Number one, that I teach you how to take off the world's glasses and see everything through biblical glasses. That we, we don't rely on human wisdom or worldly wisdom, but we, but we think biblically. And then number two, to see these children serving the Lord in the next generation. If you guys don't serve the Lord, then all of this is a waste of time for us. Because this is a real thing. This is, this is real. Jesus is real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. Eternity is real. God's grace is real. It's a wonderful thing to live in God's grace rather than under the burden of religion or legalism. It is wonderful to live under God's grace. And so last week we looked at this idea of my thoughts versus God's thoughts. My thoughts versus God's thoughts. Keep your place there in uh, Psalm 6. And let's just review it a little bit. Go to uh, Isaiah chapter 55 and look at verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, how many of you saw in the news this week that uh, based on, I think, the, the Kepler telescope, that they have found double the planets in the world than they thought they had, that they had known previously? How many of you saw that in the news this week? How many of you thought about this verse again? See, the more that we learn, the higher God's thoughts are than our thoughts. So now there are double the planets, and of course, what are they hoping for on these planets? That there'll be some planet out there that can support life. Now remember, Carl Sagan, based on his anthropic principle, said that there are uh, something like 17 characteristics that would be required for a planet to sustain life. And those are water, and it has to be a certain distance from a sun, because if it's too close, they burn. If it's too far away, they freeze. There are these, these principles that, that they have to have. There has to be a, a certain amount of gravity so that um, you, know, you don't fly off into outer space. Now, some of us have less of a worry about that than others, right? It's, it's one of those things. But, but there has to be a, a certain amount of gravity for people to be able to stay on. So these are the anthropic principles. So here's what the scientists are excited since they can't find any planets like those. Remember what Carl, Pagan, I mean, Carl Sagan said that... That certainly, with all of the planets that there are available, there have to be some that would have the same characteristics as the planet Earth. The only problem is there aren't. Now that there are double the planets, now they're really hoping because they found some where there might be liquid water. 
And, and they're all excited about it. There might be a planet that could sustain life. Now, I'll say this. There might be alien life forms. Who knows? I don't know. I know they're not men because Adam was the first man. Right? You know, there, there might be, you know, Ewoks. <laughs> Caleb. He finally got excited in church for the first time. Yes! So, it's so interesting that the world is, is just consumed with this concept of there being life out there because they can't explain life on this planet unless someone brought it here. Well, someone did bring it here. His name is God. And this passage says, as, as, uh, let's read it again. I don't want to misquote it. It, it says in verse uh, 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So what we just learned is that God's thoughts are twice as high as we thought they were. The more we learn about God, or the more that we learn about the world, the greater our God is. Isn't that fantastic? And then last week we looked at, based on the law of first mention, when you understand, when you study the Bible, the first time something is mentioned in Scripture, it gives us information about that subject that will carry out through Scripture and will remain to be true. That's the law or the principle of first mention. So go to, uh, to Genesis chapter 6. This is the first mention of thoughts in the Bible. Thoughts. And uh, we compared last week God's thoughts versus our thoughts. And so again, look at verse... Uh, this is Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him at His heart. All right, so here, it's very clear. The first mention of thoughts is that they're only evil. Only evil. That's, that's the first time thoughts are used. Then we looked at, uh, I believe it's uh, Genesis chapter 20. We're not going to take the time to go there. And it's when Abraham is going into the country, and his wife is really pretty, and he's afraid that somebody will kill him for his wife. So he tells his wife to tell the king, if anyone asks, that, uh, that she is his brother. Or she is his sister. That would really be a lie, wouldn't it? Um, and when Abimelech is confronted by God, and God said he's going to kill him if he does this, and, and he says to Abraham, why, why would you do this thing? And Abraham said, but I thought. But I thought. That's the, that's the first time anyone says, I thought. And so what happens is, often we are confronted with the Scripture, and the Bible tells us one thing, and we'll even say, uh, but, yeah, I know it says that, but I think. Remember we said last week that that's the attack of the comma buts. Uh, this is true, comma, but I think. I think. John Leffler is a radio guy that I listened to that came from him. Now, th this is very important that we get this. God's thoughts are different than our thoughts. And this is something that's hard for us. Remember Fonzie? I was... Remember that episode? Remember? We're, we're just... Our thinking is wrong. It is wrong. And reason will lead you astray if it's not biblical reason. 
And so what we looked at last week was God's thoughts versus our thoughts. God's thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. His ways are so much higher than our ways. And, and, and the distance is so wide that the more we learn, the wider it gets. Right? That's where we were last week. This week, I want us to look at this subject. God's thoughts about man. God's thoughts about man. Now, for most of the world, their thought they believe that God is this big, fluffy Mr. Rogers character. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Won't you be mine? Remember Mr. Rogers? And I, I read a book a while back where the guy said that he always thought of Jesus as Mr. Rogers. And then he had this thought, why would anybody want to kill Mr. Rogers? Don't like zip-up sweaters, maybe? I don't know. But why is that? Um, I think it was Erwin Lutzer who said, if the world loves your Jesus, it's because you've made him into something that he is not. Is that right? You know, you have that, that whole philosophy. He's got the whole world in his hands. Right? Kumbaya. All this type of religion... How about this? Have you ever heard this statement? God's not mad at you. How many of you ever heard someone say something like that? God's not mad at you. Well, what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at what the Bible says about God's thoughts toward man. Remember, our thoughts are not His thoughts. His ways are not our ways. What about God's thoughts toward man? So now let's go to Psalm 7. And let's look at verse 11. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Y'all see that? Let's read that verse out loud together. You ready? God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to understand what your thoughts are toward mankind. Father, help us to understand your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, this is another one of those verses that I've never seen on a pillow. Right? You go into the Christian bookstore and you see this beautiful artwork. You never see a verse like this. And I don't know that I would necessarily want... One of these days, somebody's going to bring me a pillow with something like this on it. But I don't really want that. But the, it, is, it is interesting that the, the picture of God that's out in the world is so different from the clear statements of Scripture. So I asked earlier, how many of you have heard this statement, God's not mad at you? And now here's the problem. If you're wicked, He is. That leads us to another problem. People don't think they're wicked. They think they're okay. Can I tell you something? We're not okay. Now, some of you know where I'm going right now. You, just, you could write this script. The thought that always comes to my mind on this topic is this question, why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. There aren't any good people. Amen? That's right. Remember, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. Okay? There aren't any good people. Remember, the, the, the transcendence of your worship is in direct proportion to the depth of your knowledge and understanding of God. Is that fair? 
the, the height of your worship, if you want a, a genuine worship experience, a, a, a biblical worship experience, that's only, you're only able to focus on the greatness of God if you understand something of the greatness of God. Is that fair? And yet... We can't understand grace. You know the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a good person like me. What's the word in the song? A wretch. A wretch. Remember that's what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, I think it's verse 14 or 15. He says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire and to be clothed with right, white raiment that, that the, the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And, and, and he wants to provide them salve to put on their eyes so that they can see. That's Jesus Christ. That's what he says to the church. That's what he says to believers. We need to understand that, that you can't comprehend God's grace until you understand your sinfulness. Or your wickedness. So here's the question. Here, here's our text. Look at it says in verse eleven, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Every day. So here's the thing. Now I understand that in me that is in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. Is that what Paul wrote? Inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I'm wicked. Does God love me? Is God mad at me? God's not mad at me. Why? Because when God sees me, He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not my righteousness, because there would be none to see. Is that fair? Go to Romans chapter 10. God's thoughts toward man. Go to Romans 3. We'll do this instead. Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. How many of you have heard of seeker-sensitive churches? Right? They're seeking for people that don't exist. They're sensitive to people that don't exist. There's none that seeketh after God. Is that what the Bible says? Okay. Y'all look up here at me for just for a second. This is, the, um, this is not the scriptural part. This is the, the pastor's commentary part. Okay. Now from an opinion from Jim Alter. Um, I grow weary of movements in Christianity that are based on either, only one of two things, complete ignorance of the clear teaching of Scripture or a complete contradiction, intentional contradiction of the clear teaching of Scripture. You understand that on, on the seeker-sensitive thing, there's only two options. is they don't know this verse is in the Bible or they don't agree with this verse. Are there any other? I don't think there are any other options for that. And that's, that's where God, take off the world's glasses and put on biblical glasses because God's grace is just so fantastic. 
if you misunderstand the nature of mankind, then you can't comprehend the, the, just the magnificence of God's fantastic grace. All right, so back to the text. Verse 11, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. Look at verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So here's the deal. If we're all sinners, if we are all completely and only sinful, then God is angry with that, isn't He? So the Bible says God is angry with that. He judges whether a person's righteous or not. And then He is angry with the wicked every day. That's why salvation becomes so important. I'm so glad God is not angry with me. I'm glad that we as believers are delivered from the wrath to come. That's what the Bible says. We're delivered from the wrath to come. Not we will be delivered. We are delivered from the wrath to come. The reason that's so wonderful is we deserve the wrath. How many of you ever heard this? Wait till your father gets home. Have you hear that? Yeah. You know, for me, mom had already dealt with it. My parents had never heard of double jeopardy. <laughs> right? Mom deals with it. Then dad comes home. And isn't it wonderful when dad had a dispensation of grace and the judgment didn't fall, especially when you knew it was coming and when you deserved it, when you deserved it. Look, we deserve to go through the tribulation. We deserve the wrath. But God's grace is so wonderful to us that based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, based on the merits of the perfect Son of God, we who are saved, we who have placed our faith and trust in Christ alone for eternal life, we are delivered from the wrath to come. That is fantastic. And we ought to be happy about that. But man, we get so bogged down with the cares of this life, we have to remember how short life is. What is life? It's but a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Remember the rich man said, I, I'm going to let's eat, drink, and be merry. How's it finished? Now for tomorrow we die. But in the text, that's not what it was about. He was going to build new barns, tear down his old barns, and new, build new barns to put all his stuff in. And Jesus said, boast not thyself tomorrow. Jesus said to him, right there, Jesus said, look, a man's life doesn't consist of the stuff which he possesseth. And then he said this, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Life is very short. That's why the Bible says, set your affection on things above. Set your affection on things above. The Bible says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The Bible says that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. But we become so earthbound in our thinking that we can't even enjoy the grace that God has given us. The amazing gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sin and joy and power and strength for this walk today and tomorrow if the Lord doesn't return. Praise the Lord for that. But God's thoughts about man. First of all, He's angry with the wicked Every day. Look at Psalm 39. Psalm 39. 
Um, look at verse 1. I said, I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. I was dumb with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred. My heart was hot within me while I was musing, the, while I was musing, the fire burned. Then spake I with my tongue, The Lord make me to know mine end, and the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as an hand's breath, or as an hand breath, hand breath, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Selah. Now, if you'll remember back 17 years, 16 years, when we did our Ecclesiastes study, um, when I first became pastor here, uh, uh, we, we do preach through books of the Bible, and I thought that the first book that would be good for me to preach through is Ecclesiastes. I was a very dumb pastor. That was the hardest thing I've ever done is preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. But one of the things that we learned through that study is the definition of vanity. Vanity is that of which rocks dream. What do rocks dream about? Nothing. Nothing. Now look at what the Bible says. Look at the end of verse 5. Verily, truly, strong statement about the truthfulness of this statement, verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. What are men worth? Wow. Okay, let's pray. Don't you feel good? <laughs> let's leave here. See, that's the most depressing church I've ever been to. <laughs> Look, we can't understand how great God's grace is until we understand how God thinks about people. Now, how many of you know John 3.16? Let's say it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Pray, is that grace? That's amazing grace. So how can God be angry with the world and with, with, with the wicked every day and uh, identify men as in their best state as altogether vanity and still love the world? That's how great God is. Do you, when you understand he's angry at the wicked every day and they're altogether nothing and yet he still loved them enough to send his son to die on the cross. That puts a different spin on it, doesn't it? He didn't come because we're good and we're great and we're wonderful. Amen. Laura and I went to Beverly Hills a couple of years ago. They said, what are you going to do there? We said, we're going to let the beautiful people look at us. You know, if, if you go to the rich and the famous and the beautiful and it looks like everybody has everything, you don't really want to do anything for those people. Right? Why? Well, they have it all. They have it all. And then when you go to the, to the, to the poor and, you know, the, the, they show the videos of the starving children, you want to help those, those children. But then when you understand the, the political situation or the thinking and the living of the people, of the leadership that have put the people in that state, and you think, well, 
Where's the hope in that? What are we, there is no hope in it. You've got to lead people to Jesus Christ, get them in a, in a biblical state of thinking, and then their quality of life can be raised. Jesus Christ understood the complete wickedness of the world, and He still stepped into it to die for us. That's the love that Jesus has for us. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Uh, I want us to look at two passages quickly, then we'll get into the heart of what I, what I want to talk about. Go with me to... Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and then we'll come back to Proverbs. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God's thoughts toward men. First Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 24. Verse 23 for the context. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You see that? Jesus Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Look at verse 30. But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that according as it is written... He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Amen? So God is, Jesus Christ is identified as wisdom. Is that clear in the Scripture? All right, go to Proverbs chapter 1. God's thoughts towards men. Verse 20. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 20. Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse. In the openings of the gates in the city, she uttereth her words, saying, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but ye have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel, they despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices, for the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from the fear of evil. Amen? Now look, Sometimes people have this idea of God that He is very um, uh, timid to judge. That's not what this text is saying. Is that right? So, what does the Bible tell us about God's thoughts towards man? Well, that He's angry with the wicked every day, that man in his best state is altogether vanity, And that when they refuse, when a man refuses the reproof of God, the correction of God in His Word, that God will laugh at His destruction, He will mock at His calamity. Is that right? 
Now, go with me to John chapter 3. What about religious people? What about religious people? Uh, again, as I mentioned, one of the problems in uh, broader Christianity and all the world is just weak thinking. And so if, if you watch a, a movie about the Christian foundations of America or you read something about Christian history in the world, there's only one problem with much of that. It's the definition of a Christian. A Christian is a follower of Christ. Is that right? Is that, is that a fair definition? How does a person become a Christian? You've got to get saved. If you're not saved, you're not a Christian. And I know people say, well, I know, but what we mean is, you know, what you mean is a distortion of Christianity. Almost everything that's called Christianity is not Christianity. It's a, it's a pagan religion, religious system dressed up like Christianity that's the invention of Satan to keep people from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that right? And so, I know he's not saved, but he's a good Christian man. I'm not sure what that means. What it means is they're not, they're not against God in the culture, right? And, and they like using the name Jesus at Christmas and things like that. They have a religious view. It's just not the view of Christ from the Bible. Okay, so how does Jesus look at religious people? Here's John chapter 3. This is our best example of it. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So this was a great man. This was a great man, and he was a religious man. If he was a ruler and a Pharisee, that means he probably had the whole Old Testament memorized. He at least had the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He at least had that memorized and could converse in it. He was a very religious man. Every waking moment of his life was controlled by his religion. Everything he ate, everything he wore, every step he took, every thought he had, everything was influenced by his religion. He was, without exaggeration, one of the most religious people to ever walk the face of the earth. Okay? Let's look at how Jesus deals with him. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him. Now, why did he come at night? Because the Pharisees hated Jesus. If, when, when, uh, if you even try to bring up his name, Jesus' name, to the Pharisees, they'd go crazy. They hated him. Uh, then look at this. He says, the same came uh, to Jesus by night. And said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Now, how about that? Why would the Pharisees hate a teacher that has come from God? That's interesting, isn't it? Then look at what he says. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. And so Jesus, if you look up here, uh, Jesus said to him, Why, thank you. So kind of you to notice. You know, I'm really glad that you've come. Take off your coat, sit down, let's talk. 
Let's see how Jesus handled the religious leader. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's no hi, how are you? Look, you need to be born again. You're not going to see the kingdom of God. This is what he said to one of the most religious people that ever walked the face of the earth. Then look at what it says. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Now I've got to say, that's a good question. All right? You've got to be born again. How in the world is that going to happen? All right? Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me just throw this out. Some people have taken that to mean that that's baptism. Of course not. When you're born, physical birth is water. The, the second birth is of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. It's capitalized there. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. What do religious people need? They need to be saved. They need to be born again. And that's interesting. As I discussed a minute ago, the state of Christianity in the world, where if you tell them, look, you deserve hell. Jesus Christ, by His amazing grace, came and was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life and died on the cross for you and for me. He was buried for three days, rose from the dead, proving that He was, is, and always will be God. And He ascended to the right hand of the Father and He makes intercession for you and me right now. And we say, that's an amazing wonderful story. And religion says, yeah, but that's not enough. It's not enough. The Bible says we put Jesus to an open shame. The Bible says we make His, his sacrifice, His death, of non-effect. That's what religion does. And what Jesus thinks, what God thinks of man is that they're wicked and He's angry with them all every day and that... Man at his best state is altogether nothing. And man deserves hell. But he loves them anyway because of his great grace. And then people say, yeah, big deal. Who cares? Who cares? What does God think about the believer? What does God think about the one who comes to him and is his child. Go to Psalm 139. And remember, what this language is so foreign. Now, in churches like this, it's not. You hear it all over the place. But in, in broader Christianity, this, this understanding of the depravity of mankind, it is, it, it's so foreign. Um, and, you know, I think of our founders when they said, I think it was John Adams who said that our Constitution, our form of government, is only for a righteous and holy people. It's wholly inadequate for any other. So when you, tr you see them, they try to take democracy to Egypt. And so now there are roving bands walking the streets killing Christians in Egypt today, right now. That's, that's going on in, in Libya just this last week. They were going door to door in Libya. Are you a Christian? They pull you out in the street and kill you. These roving bands in Libya. 
Yeah, that, that uh, uh, Muslim spring, is, it's great, isn't it? What is that? Hey, we've got to bring democracy to these countries. Well, what if the people voting are wicked? What are you going to get? A wicked outcome. Wickedness. Wickedness. It's so important, a biblical worldview. Now, now, I understand John Adams wouldn't have liked us, right? When um, Francis Wayland and... Uh, no, I'm sorry. When James Manning and and from from what was Brown became Brown University and uh, John Leland and and others went to see him at the first Constitutional Congress in or the first Continental Congress in uh, at Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia in 1774, and they said, "Look, we we've got to do something. This established religion, this this state church in Massachusetts, it's it's they're taking away our land. They're putting us in prison. We really need religious liberty in Massachusetts." And John Adams said, there will sooner be a realignment in the celestial bodies as a disestablishment of religion in Massachusetts. Okay, so John Adams didn't like us. But he understood the need for broader Christianity and a true understanding of good and evil and of the, the sinfulness of mankind. Right? Men are not okay. He had that down. Look at, look at Psalm 139. What does God say about those who are His? So this is Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid Thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. That verse has a different meaning for us now, doesn't it? You put that with Isaiah 55. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I stand up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me, Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day, and the darkness as the light are both alike to thee. This is what God thinks about us. He just loves us. You know, God is with me here. God, some of you will remember this from several years ago. God's with me in my routine. My, he knows when I sit down. He knows when I get up. He knows when I go to bed. He knows my daily routine. God is present there. He's with me. He knows about the struggles in your life, the struggle at your job, the struggle uh, at home, uh, whatever it is, struggle at school. He's with you through your daily routine. And look at, uh, look at verse... Um, oh, I'm going to skip over some of it, but I love this one right here. Look at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. You know, as a believer, there are times when you stray away from the Lord. God's right there with you the whole time. You can't hide from Him. I think of Jacob, your son, when he was, I don't know, probably three. He'd like to play hide-and-seek. Find me. Find me. Well, we had these curtains at our house, and they came down about that high. And so Jacob went and hid behind the curtains. They covered his face. And so he thought that we couldn't see him. And he's standing there, he's saying, find me. <laughs> and Laura starts saying, where's Jacob? 
Where is Jacob? Well, he was really 14. I said he was three just to spare him some embarrassment. But it's... <laughs> That's the way that we are. We think that we can run from God and we can hide from His presence. Look, if you're in the pitch black, He's light. He can see it just as if it's day. You're never away from Him. He loves you and He's with you and He knows you. I think about uh, Jacob got it naturally. When I was a kid, I hated swimming lessons. Hated swimming lessons. I was five or six or whatever. And to pass the, the swimming thing, you had to swim from one le- end of the pool to the other with your face in the water. All right, And so I said, I could do this, and I was going to trick him. So what I did was I just put my face in the water and walked like this, not thinking that the people in the stands can see through the water. I was a genius. I can imagine my parents sitting up in the stands thinking, I don't know who that kid is. Who's this? What a weirdo. Look at this knucklehead. Now, how many of you think that that's kind of an immature thing to do? How many of you were literally, you were never that dumb? Would you raise your hand? Never. This is who you called as pastor. It's your fault. Okay. That's the way that we become in our Christian life. We think that God doesn't see us. He doesn't know us. What does God think of you? Well, when you're one of His, He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's with you every second Everything about you. Famous passage here. Look at verse uh, 14. Verse 13. For thou hast possessed my reins, that is, the, the innermost parts. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That, that knows that you don't like, you know, the shape of your hips. You know, you say, I don't look like the girls on the magazines. Neither do they. Right? You know, I, I saw a show the other day, and this woman, she appears on the screen, and she was a ghoul. I mean, I'm looking at this lady, I'm thinking, good night. <laughs> but there was something familiar. It's kind of like a train wreck. You had to keep looking, you know. You don't want to see it, but you have to keep looking. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, but she's familiar. There's some, it was Melanie Griffith. Say no to the surgery. (laughs) It was unbelievable. And see, what happens is you have this false view of beauty. When God made you, every part of you, you know, guys, you think you're too short or you think you're too big or you think you're no, whatever. God made you just the way you are. Look at what you are. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should number them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. How wonderful is that? Whether it's David's thoughts about God or God's thoughts about David, it's wonderful. What does God think about you if you're one of His? He thinks you're fantastic. 
Isn't that awesome? Why? He doesn't see any of your sin. He doesn't see any of your weakness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, that should change our attitude. <clears throat> Look at the next verse. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies do take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my... What is that? Thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Remember what the Bible says? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to hate wickedness. We're supposed to hate it. We're supposed to absolutely hate it because it's against our wonderful God. What does God think about you? If you're lost, He's angry with you. If you're not saved, He's angry with you right now. Yes, God is mad at you. And He will judge you in, eternal, in an eternal hell. But He'd rather you get saved. He wants you to be one of His, his chosen creatures. His precious children that He wants to spend eternity with. Praise the Lord. That's what He wants. That's what He wants. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. What does He think about us? He thinks that out of His amazing grace, He came and died on the cross for people that would just as soon ignore Him. Let's not be those people. Let's be the people that say, God, give me your thoughts. My thoughts aren't good. Help me walk in your thoughts. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me value that I did not possess. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Lord, we don't deserve any of it.